Aloha. This is Dr. Tiki, and my prescription for you is to listen to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Tell your people to surrender now and avoid war. Don't think you get me so easily. It is now time for us to put Earth under our roof. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess, confess that you will give you witchcraft. You expect me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Five by Saturday night. Hello, dear friends, and welcome to TalkCast 533 and this edition of Sci-Fi Saturday Night, brought to you once again without any meaningful REM sleep. I am your host, the passing on the flu shot, taking the whiskey shot, the dome. We are the only podcast to guarantee to retain carbon neutrality for the rest of this fiscal year becoming uh, all electric before the end of 2023 uh, because uh, I bought these stupid uh, electric things. Cam, we did buy those, didn't we? Are you talking the solar panels or are you talking the turbines? Because you did purchase both. Ah, I had the Amazon receipts here. Oh, damn it. Didn't mean to do that. So what I've done to to, to double our electrical input is I have strapped the solar panels to the fins of the wind turbines. Oh, perfect. That should help, right? I think that'll work. I think think it will work amazingly. Joining us tonight, the Area 51 broadcast bunker, is the voice that you just heard, Commander Cam, who will tire of my taunts eventually. And then we'll have to reprocess him because Soylent Green is human, as everybody knows. It's another mask-mandated, fully quarantined evening here in Area 51. In this episode, it's time to play, hey, who's that guy? Because there are so many guys in this book that it's hard to remember who that guy is. Our special guest to help us with all the different guys is Miles Cameron as we talk about his new book, Against All Gods, The Age of Bronze, book one. Or as I like to call it, hey, who's that guy? Joining us tonight, our our guest, welcoming back, Miles Cameron. Miles, welcome back to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being here. I loved being with you guys. And by the way, I just want to say with some amusement that I was Commander Cameron in the U.S. Navy. So, uh, you know, we'll, we, we, that's we right, you were to, actually, weren't you? We, we may have to fight over the title, but that's okay. I'll just run with Miles for tonight, and, uh, and I'll right. let Commander Cam uh, have, have his title. Perfect. Okay, either, either that or we'll just have to, you know, upgrade. Were you ever an admiral? No, I was never an admiral. No, okay, I, so, I, uh, I decided to marry a Canadian at the wrong time and missed admiral. Anyway... Uh... Uh, here we all are. And again, thanks for having me. Uh, and um, yeah, who's that guy? I did I did put a big uh, cast of characters right at the front in case anybody wanted to look up the names of all the guys. Holy crap, did you? Oh, my God. And, and thank you, because seriously, I was literally I literally had that bookmarked and I'm literally going, OK, character, 
Okay, let me just check. I think that I read that one. Flip back, flip back. Oh yes, that's that character. And then you give a wonderful description. Okay, I'm back. So you know, this you was like an old. I don't, I don't know if you know this. There was this old Bugs Bunny cartoon. Get your scorecards. You can't tell your nights from your days without a scorecard. And I'm thinking to myself as I'm reading this, holy crap, who's this guy? And I'm flipping back. Who's this guy? And then I'm flipping back. And at one point, I had on my iPad just the scorecard and on my computer the book. So I'm bouncing back and forth from one to the other because there's literally, what, like 85 characters at one point? You know, I decided I would try and rival War and Peace and just pile up up the characters, and I gave them funny foreign names so they'd be hard to remember. Why, yes, you did, sir. Yes, you did. But, but, but look, I was, I mean, right or wrong, I was trying to get that feeling of a whole world full of people, and the people, for reasons that I think you guys get, need to revolt, but I... I didn't want it to be a tiny cast of heroes. I sort of wanted it to be like, I wanted to give the feeling of everyone in the world, if you know what I mean. And that's why there's so many names and so many people. So I I thought about this for a while, Miles. And and, I mean, we can joke about how large the dramatis personnel is because in a way it's kind of funny because there's just so damn many of them. And in a way, it, it makes sense that there needs to be a lot of them to kind of fill out this this space that you're building, I'm assuming, in, in a, a large series of books that you're putting together. So the more I thought about it, the more I said to myself, I can't just goof about this. I, I have to really make some sense of it so i thought about it which is not something i do a lot of and and, and it came to me that what what kills me about the book is that as much as i i want to not like it because it's confusingly complex and convoluted and interwoven as it can become because of the way it's structured with so many people. It's character-driven. And because it's so character-driven, it's compelling. And ultimately, really a quite beautiful study. Though many might hesitate to call it so, because they can get confused if they're not careful. So you've got to take your time with this book. And that's why it's so long and that's why it's you've really got to give it the chance to permeate once you do you're stuck with it and that's what makes it work does that make sense yeah it really does and i appreciate your attitude because okay so i'm going to start out by saying i'm old i'm i'm about to turn <laughs> no i'm about to turn 60 and I grew up in a farmhouse. I think I said this when we were talking about artifact space. I grew up in a farmhouse full of very old books. Like I grew up on Dumas and James Fenimore Cooper and, you know, people. Oh, that stuff. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Gotcha. And when I started reading Heinlein, that was like new revisionist 
fiction because I hadn't read any science fiction before I read Heinlein. And I guess what I'm trying to say is I like that complexity. And yeah. when reading, I feel like complexity makes you feel like there's depth. That that may sound kind of facile, but like that if if you get enough interwoven tales, and I'm just going to toss out a character. One of, to me, the major characters, she may seem minor in book one, is Lila, who appears to be maybe a goddess and maybe sort of a spy on the gods, and maybe you can't really tell which side she's on, and also she's probably smoking hot. Um, and okay. Like, I have a long-term plan for Lila, but Lila isn't does not appear to be a major story arc, and yet, in fact, her arc is vital. And if I cut Lila, I cut a point of view that helps you understand how dicked up the gods are and how much infighting is going on amongst the gods. And also by adding her story arc, I I'm, I'm sort of wringing my hands together. I help you understand how everyone, hero, villain, or just trying to live through this horrible time, has a story arc. And I, I kind of like that. I like it when I read Dorothy Dunnett. I like it when I read Alexander Dumas. I like it when I read Patrick O'Brien. I like it when I read Robert Heinlein. I want to feel that every character had an arc, not just the two or five protagonists, which frankly bores me when I read. There it is. Nobody, I, I, nobody, I like nobody that, that you've got there is a red shirt. Right, exactly. Yeah. No, and, and I agree with you. In fact, to be honest, I wouldn't, I, it, Lila actually flew under my radar. So uh, well done there, because I usually can pick out people who are going to come in and be a larger role. And I say she flew under my radar quite well. So I got to give you, I got to take, if I was wearing a hat, I'd take my hat off to you. Because you really did a good job with that character making her fly under the radar. So, you know, seriously, you know, in, that is that is amazingly well done. I'm just going to toss out a spoiler and say in book two, without her, the protagonists would get nowhere. And yet when she does what she does, which is basically unlocking heaven to the humans, she does it for reasons that you've seen in book one if you've understood what her complex web of alliances is. And yeah, she just seems like she's the hot girl in heaven, but she has desires and interests of her own, and so she has an arc. And speaking of these wonderful gods, it's interesting. And of course, <laughs> yes, Dom knows where I'm going, because I, I promised yep. him I would say this quote. Because if anybody that's a long-term listener to, knows that when it comes to potty bouts, Dove is the potty mouth on this podcast, and I very what? rarely swear. Never. Yes, you have the potty mouth here. Trust okay. me. Okay. But I'm going to quote the very first line from the from your book, if, with your permission. Please be my guest. All right. And this, to me, describes your gods, and I will explain why once I've said the quote. What the fuck just happened? And this is the the Lord of the Gods. This is uh, Enkul Anu. I probably butchered that, but, you know, what the heck. And good old Enkul here has just said this to the other gods. 
And when I first read this, it threw me for a, for a loop because I'm looking, well, these are gods, you know, I mean, because, you know, most time when you read gods, they're either talking in very, very, you know, Shakespearean terms or they're talking in something that makes them sound loftier or more high handed. But then I got thinking about how you as, as I got reading further into the book, how you wrote and keep in mind, this is not a one-off. This is how the gods talk throughout the book. I mean, there is one case where, um, let me find that other quote, Dome, that you uh, so happily included, um, which was, uh, let me just pop, bring it right up. Oh. And it's uh, where, where, again, Enkul says to it, it says, tell the king of Kira to stick to something he understands, like incest. These are lines from the <laughs> gods. And, I, and this is... This is to me when I'm reading this, I'm going, it throws me off because it's like these gods sound like you pulled people from today and set them back there. But then I started thinking when you have gods talking like we talk today, that would make them incredibly alien to the beings that they deal with your mortals in the story. And I'm wondering, was that your idea? was to use, you know, our idioms that we use today to make them, um, you know, alien? Or was there another reason why the opening line is what it was? So um, I'm a big fan of the Iliad. And I won't pretend yep. that the Iliad wasn't behind all of this. Even though Enkel Anu, which you pronounced completely correctly, is uh, really a Hittite name, and I've got... Mesopotamian deities and Mayan deities and Aztec deities. Let's leave that aside. Uh, my first inspiration was the Iliad. And, uh, you know, as I said off the air, when I read the Iliad, even though I love the fabulous language and I can read some of it in Greek, not all of it, because my Greek's not that great. Despite all of that, the gods suck and they treat human beings, all of them, like chattel. It doesn't matter whether you're Achilles, the almost immortal Hector, the greatest warrior, or Briseis, the slave girl, they're all treated like crap by the gods, right? So yep. I decided at some point uh, pretty early on that my gods were going to sound like modern day bike gang members. And I, I actually grew up with some bikers. I, I have some admiration for bikers. I'm not in any way blanketing that bikers are all gangbangers or bad people at all. But I remember their language. And, um, and I thought it would be amusing to cast the gods as people who were pretty much only interested in power, wealth, sex, the stuff that I remember from knowing some people in the life in, in my youth, if that makes sense. Um, yep. Because yep. these these are primal deities who have made themselves gods because, of course, as you discover in the book, I don't think I'm wrecking the book for anyone. They're not necessarily totally immortal. They actually have flaws and whatever. So they're sort of more like petty tyrants than gods. And because of that, I decided to make them sort of potty-mouthed assholes. Maybe that's... Maybe I'm being unfair to my book. Uh, once in a while, I would like to say that Enkel Anu, at least, is capable of giving a pretty good speech, right? He rallies his troops a couple of times. He he can express himself. And certainly some of the other godlike characters can express themselves. But, you know, when they're in a hurry and angry, they sound like 
people. It's it's an interesting juxtaposition, um, having the gods actually worse than humans, uh, <laughs> and, and yet it's 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 an interesting build that you're putting together here in a Bronze Age, and the question is where you're going with all of this. Uh, sorry, do you want me to just straight up answer that and spoil the rest of the series, or are you gonna like? No, 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 no. Not, I, not, I, I want to read the rest of the series. Not, not, not in so many terms, but you know, just well, kind of throw us a couple of hints. You know, give us, give us a crumb there. Sure, I'm gonna go back to the Iliad. What originally gave me the idea for this? And by the way, I have read Margaret Atwood's Penelope ad, which I thought was great. I've read other. I've read feminist takes, I've read revisionist takes. I kind of read whatever goes by on the Iliad. But I thought, what would have happened, because I'm a big fan in some ways of the Iliad and the Odyssey, if, um, if Penelope and Odysseus, who are obviously the bright boy and bright girl of the crew in, in the Iliad world, if they'd revolted, what would happen if somebody said like, Screw this. this. The game is rigged. All of us are pawns. What can we do to fight back to take control of our own lives? What would happen? So, you know, the the arc, is, there's two arcs, and I, I will give away the arcs. I just won't tell you how they come out. Okay. One arc is, are the mortals capable of revolting against the immortals and winning? So that's an arc. And then, if you consider that, and I notice in reading reviews that a bunch of readers have already hopped on this. If the mortals are capable of taking on the gods, are they capable of relinquishing the power they will take on to beat the gods? Or are they just going to become a bunch of rapacious assholes themselves? And those would be the two questions that the series poses. Because, you know, absolute power corrupts eternally. That's what it says on the front cover. and uh, I think we have only to look at the political environment of our world right now, Vladimir Putin comes to mind, to realize that people who may be saviors in one moment can then turn into very, very difficult people in another moment. So can the heroes win? And if the heroes win, will they still be heroes? Those would be the two arcs that we're aiming at in a trilogy. So how far along are we in the second and third book? Second book is done, dusted, edited, and um, in. Uh, third book is a detailed outline. Oh, my. So you're well into working your way through this trilogy at this point. Yeah, and for some of your listeners, I will say that uh, my editor's at Gallants want this series finished before I send in Deep Black, which is the sequel in the duology to Artifact Space. So um, because I'm very eager to write Deep Black, I am writing through the series at a pretty rapid rate. Excellent. 
Um, also, I'm not George R. R. Martin. I am neither as rich nor possibly as talented. So I actually have to finish my series. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably a really good idea. Just, you know, just for the heck of it. And one other thing I'd like to call out here is you're playing in the fantasy realm. And, you know, for those of us who have read fantasy equally as science fiction, I'm raising my hand. Um, those of us that read fantasy are very familiar with certain trope creatures. Got to have elves. You got to have goblins. You got to have your orcs. Got to have your dwarves. Got to have your dragons. In this, I unless you've hidden them away, I haven't seen a whole lot of dragons in there. I mean, not to any great degree, but you've got something far more interesting in your dry ones. Are a very fascinating creature. Hold on, just a second, guys. Yep. Looks like the party's moved its way in. <laughs> Sorry, friends. Um, so, uh, two part answer to that. First of all, I'm going to say, like, uh, I, I'm going to assume you haven't hit the end because there's definitely no, no. a dragon. I, ah. I, I, I always I always stop just short. It's my rule. And then I finish it after the podcast. I stay up late and I finish it because I don't want to spoil anything. So I usually stop. I wherever I feel like I'm starting to get into the major, the important stuff. I mean, other than the sky, unless you're talking about the sky god dragon. I haven't seen an, uh, a sign of a dragon, but maybe I do need to now finish this. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I usually stop about like, I don't know. It's usually anywhere from 50 to 100 to 20 pages. Anywhere where, where I think I'm about to run into that, that Luke, I am your father moment. Oh, and, okay. you know, so well, I usually, tr I, I, so promise I, I usually stop. A very, very impressive dragon who is called the world serpent. And we'll, I'll just leave it there. Um, but I will, oh. I will go back to the dry ones and say, uh, before I go on, I'll say, so I've written a bunch of fantasy novels. I, I think I've got eight others, eight, maybe. Um, yeah. And all of those, all, all of those figures that, that you've got, you know, that's, that's the, those are the worlds that Tolkien spawned, spawned or the worlds that the Northern European mythos to some extent spawned, but really it's kind of Tolkien, if we're honest. And yeah. fascinating as I find that, there's lots of other mythos out there. And when I was doing, one of the reasons I called this Bronze Age is that I was really interested in sort of bringing out some of the very fascinating, really bent, exciting, different groups of demons and creatures and whatever, that various people came up with in the Bronze Age because they certainly had a rich and colorful, uh, almost Cthuloid horror uh, population, let's say. Uh, just not including the standard tropes of like orcs and elves. And the dry ones, yeah, I made them up. Um, I, I saw a fabulous piece of jewelry in the National Archaeological Museum in uh, Athens of an insect-headed human that w it was actually from the Bronze Age. And I looked at it and went like, yeah, insects. We don't do enough with insects in fantasy. <laughs> um, and 
I mean, I don't want to give too much away, but the dry ones are, um, they are in a way elves. Let, let me just say that. I, I think they fill, oh. they fill the elf niche. And the reason I say that is they're alien, but beautiful and have magical powers, if you know what I mean. Um, Actually, yes, I do. And now that you say that, now I'm beginning to understand them even more. I mean, not, I thought I understood them really well, but you've just added a little extra tweak to what my understanding was of them. So, And the other thing I thought I'd play with, Cam, is I thought I'd play with the notion that all insects are always, if not evil, they're usually sort of a hive mind. I'm thinking, in fact, of Starship Troopers. But, yeah. you know, they're they're like so alien that we can't understand them. So they have to be the enemy. And in this series, they're at worst a possible ally. And at best, they're kind of like Middle Earth elves. In, in fact, I'm going to make a, an absolute comparison to to the high elves of Middle Earth and say the one thing that high elves in Middle-earth and the dry ones have in common is that they have to fight to the end. They have no choice but to fight what the humans are fighting. Whereas some of the humans, you know, wh whether you're in Middle-earth or in my book, some of the humans go with the gods, some of the humans go with Sauron, some of the humans don't go with the gods. Well, the dry ones all have to resist. And it'll become clearer and clearer as you go on why they have no choice but to resist. But yeah, they are, they are sort of, they, they have no choice. They're the, the, it, they're the resistance. And it's such a wonderful, I mean, and I, don't get me wrong. The reason I brought the dry ones up is because they're such a refreshing creation. Like you said, it is rare in a fantasy setting to see insects that are anything other than, a, and please uh, you accept this, a mindless hive mind. Nothing more than bees from a hive, you know, or ants from a, from a nest. They're they're nothing like the the dry ones we meet here. And to me, there's a little bit akin with the Tuscan Raiders from Star Wars. But there's some other things that I'm, I I can't really put my finger on. But it's the fact that they're insects, so that they are completely alien. They're not even the you know, same group that we have mammals, insects, completely separate. These, and yet they have, like, you, you look at an elf and you look at a human, there's a lot of similarity between them. Your your dry ones, eh, not as much. And yet, they're, like you said, these these dry ones are going to be, and you, I already got that impression from the get-go, is that these dry ones were going to be at the human side, whether the humans understood it or not, until the very end. Cameron, and you it's are just sharp such... as a good katana because you you just said Tuscan Raiders, and it's funny that I watched <laughs> The Mandalorian and uh, the the more recent sort of Star Wars stuff as I was doing the revisions. So I want to say, like, I hadn't seen it when I was writing the book, but during the revisions, I was kind of nodding along and going like. In the in the scenes in Boba Fett, where we're in the I don't know if you've watched all the new stuff, but when yep. when, when Boba Fett is interacting with the, the the sort of tribal raiders, and you go like, oh, they're not just mindless brutes. Look how complicated they are. 
look how interesting they are. This is good, you know, this this is good television. And also thinking of my dry ones. So you're sharp. And uh, yes, that was an influence. Yeah. yeah, and that was what I, those were the Tuscan Raiders I was thinking of as the ones out of Boba Fett, where they yeah. became something more than something to club Luke over the head with. Yeah, no. Exactly. Uh, but we're on the same page. It's scary, isn't it? <laughs> but um, uh, again, I'm really caught by how many different levels we can attack this book at because there are there's just uh, when when Cam and I talked about this book prior to you coming in to the discussion tonight. Um, we were in so many different places. I don't, this is one of the few times where Cam and I really had no real common levels. And that doesn't happen very often at all. I was talking about certain things and Cam was talking about completely different things. And I don't think we had any common levels at all because there's so many different levels of complexity going on in this book and that can be a detriment uh, if as a reader you let it be or if you let it be that can be what makes this book really click and what we're seeing happen with really good fiction right now is that there's a level of good fiction that's happening right now that's requiring the reader to become more than just a passive ingester. It's requiring them to become more actively involved as a reader. And this is one of those books. This is going to be one of those series where because it's as long as it is, because it's as complex as it is, because there's as many characters as there are, because there's as many things going on as there are, and because it's as good a story as it is, you're going to want to come along for this ride. It's a good ride. It's a fun ride. Um, it's the kind of ride that the more you deal with it, the more you sit down and you work with it and you take your time with it, the more you're going to enjoy it, the more we're enjoying it. So, and we've been talking with Miles Cameron with the first book of Against All Gods, book one. The Age of Bronze. Miles, thank you so much for joining us tonight, man. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's a real pleasure talking to you guys. It always is. Uh, I I honor you for go getting through it because it is complex. Uh, can I can I spin you a tale for a minute? Absolutely. So, uh, can each of you think of one of your favorite science fiction or fantasy novels? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So have you reread that book a few times? 
Yes. Oh, good Lord, yes. Okay, so I want you to keep that book in mind because here's the thing. I'm a veteran author. I've written 47 books. A lot of them are still in print. And when I sit down to write, I... This is going to sound weird, but I feel daring. I feel like I can take chances that maybe somebody writing their first or third book wouldn't take. So here's the thing. First of all, I realize that an awful lot of folks now listen to audiobooks instead of reading a physical book. So that's a thing. Yeah. And then I also realize that I, as a reader, so forget me as a writer, as a reader, I love the experience of rereading things I loved and finding a moment that I had missed, even though it's my 13th or 14th time through the book. And somehow it's super precious to me. So I'm a huge Tolkien nerd and I have reread Tolkien too many times, probably. <laughs> and yet, and yet the last time through, I found a moment that I just sat there going, how, how did I miss this? And this explains another thing. And I won't bore you with what it is, but when I sat down to write Against All Gods, I literally am attempting to write a book that you will enjoy, but that you'll want to read again and maybe even again and start going like, oh my God, Lila always knew what the subplot was. Oh my God, Uncle Anu has been blinded from the beginning by his wife. You know, stuff like that. I won't give away any more secrets, but I'll just say I wanted it to be like that because that experience is so great for me as a reader. And uh, like I, I'm, I'm claiming that I'm daring, which is a dangerous thing to claim as an author. But I took a chance, and I, you know, if you guys find the book too complex, then I failed. But I took a chance in trying to make it the kind of book that people wanted to go through a bunch of times. And complexity is never a bad thing. It, it's sometimes, I mean, some of my favorite books, you just mentioned one of them, and I agree with you, Lord of the Rings and even just The Hobbit. I will reread that and I will see something that I, and I've read, God, I've read The Hobbit more times than I care to think. And I still manage to find a little something that is like a little acorn, a little something that I go, oh, I didn't see that before. And then now I think I understand it a little better now that I'm a little bit older. And, you know, even with just talking to you, I kind of want to go back and just reread this from Lady Layla's perspective and see what I must have missed at some point while I was reading this. So, no, I, I think complexity is never a bad thing as long as it's a good read the first time through. Yeah, and that's the problem, right? Cam, I, I, Commander Cam, uh, pardon me, I'll give you your full title. But <laughs> oh, okay, we're, uh, we're friends. You don't have to use the title. <laughs> I deliberately, and I hope I did it right. I have what I think are really good fight scenes. I have a couple of sex scenes, and I have some good chases and some life on shipboard, and all of those are meant to kind of drag you through. So that maybe you get to the end and go like, well, I still don't really understand what happened, but the ride was good. Mm -hmm. um, that was my intent anyway. You know, when you said, how many times have you reread your favorite book? 
it immediately brought me back to my two favorite characters in the world. Wyoming Knot and Manny Garcia. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And you know who they are. I do. And may we all write, may all writers have a favorite couple like that, that some reader can hold dear in their heart, like Wyo Knott and, and Manny Garcia. Yeah, I guess that's the magic, right? To And, you know, early on, Cam was kind enough to say character. I believe when I read other people's stuff, leave me aside, it's usually characters that bring me through what might be too complicated, too boring, too outre. I'm, I'm thinking of a couple of books that I read that I loved, and I'm hard put to say exactly why, because they were very outside my usual wicket, but the characters dragged me through. Am I making yeah. that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Listen, man, you're welcome back here anytime. I understand you're traveling this summer. Yeah, I'm off to Greece to uh, participate and to some extent direct a uh, pretty large ancient Greek reenactment. I don't know if you can look at the little avatar I have on the screen at the moment. That's me in some ancient Greek bronze armor. Uh, it's not for nothing that I love the Bronze Age. I mean, not that ancient Greeks are the Bronze Age, but let's leave that aside. So I'm uh, off to the Battle of Plataea. We're going to try and defeat the Persians and save the Western world. When you come back from defeating the Persians, you want to come back and talk about it? Absolutely. I'd that would that. be way cool. I'd love, to, I'd love to have you come back and talk about that. I don't know what that has to do with science fiction, and I don't frankly give a crap. I just want you to come back and talk about it. I will, I will be delighted. And in the meantime, anybody out there in your audience can go to Platea2022.com and see what we're doing. And there's already 19 videos posted. But as the event goes on, we have a whole thing called Digital Platea because we realize not everybody can be in Greece. Outstanding. I think, we, I think we need to put a link in our in our notes for that. Absolutely. Yes. Let's do that. Miles, thank you, man. You have Thank a great you. trip. You have a great summer. I, and, I love and, talking to you guys, and I'll see you when I come home. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is made possible with the support of Granite Con and Double Midnight Comics, Plastic City Comic Con, the Upper Valley Comic Expo, Dreamforge Anvil and Dreamforge Magazine, and Comic Art House. If you're looking for a great gift idea, May we suggest Sci-Fi Saturday Night's anthology, My Peculiar Family, available on Amazon. The audiobook is also available on Audible. Our intro production was provided by Rob Watts. Check out all of his amazing work at robwattsonline.com. Our outro music was provided by Lawrence Made Me Cry. Their discography is available on Bandcamp. Thank you so much, Jojo. This is Dome saying shared pain is lessened, shared joy increased. Thus do we all refute entropy. So unless it's daytime, good night, everyone. There once was a girl from Nantucket. Good night, everybody.